Hey everyone, this episode of Books and Boba is brought to you by Libro.fm. As you know, we at Books and Boba are strong proponents of supporting your local independent bookstores, but unfortunately, due to obvious reasons, it's been hard to get out lately. That's where Libro.fm comes in. Libro.fm is the first audiobook company to make it possible for customers to purchase audiobooks through their local booksellers of choice. They offer over 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and hundreds of bookseller recommendations. And each purchase goes to support one of their 1,100 plus independent bookstore partners. Audiobooks are a perfect way to work through the TBR list of yours while doing chores, walking the dog, or just staying safe at home. All you need is a smartphone with the Libro FM app. Listeners of Books and Boba can get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one by going to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm, and enter the code BOOKSANDBOBA. With each listen, you can take pride in knowing that you're supporting your local bookstore as well as Books and Boba. Again, to access your two-for-one promo deal, um, go to Libro.fm and enter the code BOOKSANDBOBA. And now to our show. You're listening to... Whoa. And welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Martin Yu. And I'm Rira Yu. And today we have another great author interview for you. We're talking with Supriya Kelkar, the author of American Espanier Pie that just came out um, last month, right? Or, God, it's August already, so two months uh, ago? Yeah, it came out this summer. <laughs> As we've mentioned multiple times on this podcast, time has literally lost all meaning. We're recording this on a Monday, and it feels like Wednesday part 10, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all all of the days just kind of run together. I know. And I'm sure it's not the first time we've said that on this podcast. And it definitely will, will not no, be definitely the not. last because uh, this is going to be our reality for the foreseeable future, which is why I'm glad we're still able to record this podcast, even though we haven't seen each other in months. Yeah, it's nice to be able to talk to people and realize that there are other people <laughs> outside of my apartment. <laughs> Um, so, Rira, why don't you tell us a little bit about our guest today? So today we'll be speaking with Supriya Kelker, and she is the author of American as Paneer Pie, which came out this past summer. And she's also the author of Ahimsa, which was a historical fiction novel that's set in 1942 during the uh, Indian, freeman, uh, Indian Freedom Movement. And the book actually won the New Visions Award. And... Um, I'm really excited to talk to uh, Supriya because uh, American as Paneer Pie, it it reminded me a lot of my own middle school experience, as well as other uh, experience that I've heard from other Asian Americans. It explores uh, racial microaggressions in school and how uh, we other other Asian Americans in our own community and Western beauty standards, as well as Asian American beauty standards, and how that affects young girls nowadays. Also, we found out that she has the same major as you. So uh, it was really cool to hear you two geek out about um, the inside baseball of uh, screenwriting. I don't think it's that much of a secret. 
we're just we're just a little bit more structured and organized when it comes to storytelling because we have to we only have 90 pages <laughs> whereas books you can it can go on forever uh <laughs> so i hope you guys enjoy this interview and we're gonna jump right into it everyone, we're here with Supriya Kelkar, um, the author of American as Paneer Pie, as well as Ahimsa. Thank you, Supriya, for uh, joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So how has it been with, uh, with the pandemic? Like, are you getting any writing done or has it just been chaos for you? It's um yeah it's pretty much been chaos. Um I have, <laughs> I I have three small kids at home so um as soon as virtual learning started I pretty much had to stop writing for a bit. Um I used to write at like ten o'clock after they would sleep before the pandemic but um it was my New Year's resolution to not do that and to sleep better but um I'm back to staying up till one a.m. except I'm just like staring at TikTok videos and I'm not doing anything productive because I don't know that's my stress relief right now. You know everyone's got to cope right and yes. <laughs> I totally get to staying up watching um uh, just whatever can yeah. get you through the day. I guess before we get into our questions. Can you let our listeners know um, what the book is about? Yeah. Um, so American as Baneer Pie is the story of Leka, who is the only Indian American in her small town in Michigan. And Leka feels like she has two versions of herself. There's home Leka, who loves watching Bollywood movies and eating Indian food, and school Leka, who pins her hair over her bindi birthmark and avoids confrontation at all costs, especially when someone teases her for her culture. When a racist incident rocks Leica's small town, she realizes she must make a choice whether to continue to remain silent or find her voice before it's too late. So uh, the book takes place in the Midwest. And as I understand it, you also grew up in the Midwest. Uh, what was your upbringing like? Yeah, so it was very similar to Leica's. Um, I grew up in a small town in Michigan, and I wasn't the only um, Indian American or Desi kid in in town, but there were just a handful of us. It wasn't a very diverse town. Um, you know, we had a rock thrown through our window. Um, someone wrote, put a comb in that rat's nest and permanent marker on my locker in high school. There were plenty of incidents of microaggressions and othering and, you know, very obvious racism when I was growing up. So I put a lot of that um, into Leica's story as well. And how did you get into writing? Were, was writing something that you've always done as a kid or was that something that uh, came later in your life? Yeah, it was. Um, when I was in third grade, our teacher had us all write um, these little stories and he bound them as hardcover books. And I thought it was so cool to see my name on the cover. I, I decided right then and there that I was going to grow up and be an author. Um, somewhere around middle school, that dream changed to wanting to become a Bollywood screenwriter. So um, after college, I started working as a Bollywood screenwriter. Um, I would travel back and forth between Mumbai and Los Angeles and Michigan and I did that for well over a decade before um, before my first book, Ahimsa, was published. 
So as as a screenwriter, did you use a beat sheet for novel writing by any I, chance? I do. So I, I definitely write all my novels out with a beat sheet first, and then I outline them. I, I write my novels exactly like I um, write my screenplays when I'm prepping them out. So there's a lot of planning, a lot of outlining. I use a three-act structure, um, and then I start writing the book. Do you actually follow your beach sheet? <laughs> I do. I do. I um, So I learned screenwriting at the University of Michigan um, from Jim Bernstein. And um, he is a screenwriter as well as a um, instructor there. And he sort of, you know, drilled it into us that it's structure, structure, structure. So um, I spend a long time working on the structure before I actually go to the book. And so then that structure pretty much stays the same. Yeah, um, I, I was really curious about that because I studied screenwriting in college. And uh, again, it's all about structure. It's all about having your beats there. Yeah. But a lot but a lot of the times um, it depended on the assignment for me. Like I will have there. There were cases where I had every single scene uh, like outlined. And then there were scripts where I was like, I, I have the beats, but I'm probably not going to follow it at all because <laughs> yeah. writing is unpredictable. It is. So, yeah. But that's really cool that you actually follow your beats and you have such a tight structure for your books because novel writing, it's it, it's a massive project. You don't yeah. have like, because like scripts are like 90 to 110 pages and you know, there are very strict rules to uh, to adhere to. But right. with writing, novel writing, it's just, you know, it's free game. <laughs> yeah. And and much longer. Like I, when I first started writing books, my editor, um, Anahimsa, was like, you know, you have to pause and take a second to describe what people are wearing and what the scenery looks like, you know, because from the screenwriting background, you don't do that because there's a costume designer and there's a set decorator and and there are other people to take care of all of those details. So um, it took a bit of retraining to get get um, into novel writing. But I, I do definitely depend heavily on the screenwriting background. I'm more amazed that. So this is, I guess, from my personal experience, because I tried to do a creative major uh, when I was in college and I got um, my dad doesn't remember this, but he forced me to quit. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> Like the fact that both you and um, Rira were able to make it through and get your degrees is like amazing to me. Like, was were your parents always supportive of um, a creative career, or was it something you had to like fight for? Um, I had to fight for it a little bit, but they were supportive. My my dad, um, he's he's an engineer, and um, he <laughs> he also wrote some Hindi movies on the side that became movies. So um, he, I think I got that um, love of writing from him. So I remember being on campus the day I decided I wanted to actually be a film major, and I called him, and I was like, is it okay if I am a <laughs> film major? <laughs> um, and he was like, well, you have to have another, you have to have a backup plan. So, so I did have to get a, um, another degree in psychology as well. <laughs> but, um, you know, I never used that. And I just um, went immediately after college. I started writing for a um, Hindi film director, producer, writer. And I just ended up um, being lucky that way, I guess. So how long did it take you to um, to finish your debut book? It um, Yeah, that took a long time. So I first had the idea for Ahimsa um, as a biopic of my great grandmother. It's um, the the premise is sort of very loosely based on her life. Um, it's a historical novel that takes place in 1942 in India. And um, it just wasn't working as a screenplay. And then 
I thought maybe it should be from not from the point of view of a freedom fighter, but from her her daughter's point of view. So once I had that idea, I wrote the first draft of the book in 2003 and it was terrible. So I set it aside and um, any every year in between the screenwriting assignments that I was on, I would come back home and remember that this book exists and I would do a, a new draft each year. And in 2016, it sold and it was published in 2017. So um, over 14 years after I wrote the first draft, it became a book. Wow, that is persistence. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, if, I, I think I was lucky to have the privilege that I, I could keep working on it and not not have to give up. So I'm grateful for that. But um, yeah, I, I'm lucky that it all worked out. So Ahimsa, uh, like you said, it takes place in 1942. It's a historical fiction novel. How was it writing a contemporary novel this time around? Was it harder? Was it, um, you know, I, I know for historical fiction novels, you have to do more research. Was it easier setting it in, you know, modern day? Yeah, it de- it definitely was. Um, I think such a huge part of writing historical novels for me is the research and um, you know, that involves reading a lot of old books and biographies and making sure everything is historically accurate in addition to being interesting on the story level. So um, contemporary uh, moved a lot faster for me. Um, I still, you know, love both books equally. Um, but I I think because American as Your Pie was sort of my story, I wrote that in five weeks, the first draft. And five weeks? Yeah, I th- you know, I wrote it in 2017 and at the time my children were young and I, my two children were young and then I had a baby and I live in the same town that I grew up in and it's doubled in size and it's a lot more diverse, but, um, with everything going on politically in the world that year, um, I found myself really worrying that my kids were going to go through everything that I went through in school and, Obviously, those of us who've experienced hate, we know that it never went anywhere. Um, but I think this time, just from the lens through the lens of a parent, I was really worried. And so from that worry um, came the story of hope and empowerment and joy. And um, it sort of just came out of me. You know, I, I wrote it very, very quickly. Yeah, when I was reading it, um, I was really tempted to say, oh, this is timely. But at the same time, like, the 2016 election was such a long time ago. Right. And like you said, hate never went anywhere. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it it just became more in the forefront nowadays because people are emboldened right. by what they're seeing on television. And yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I should add, it wasn't just five weeks because then I did do two years of edits with my editor. <laughs> <laughs> you also have a draft, lifetime yeah. of experience. Yes. Of, yeah. Put it, putting your own personal experience into the book. Totally. Uh, yeah. So um, you've said that Leica, um, you know, she divides her identity. She has her home Leica, and then she has school Leica. And home Leica loves Bollywood movies, Indian fashion, and celebrating holidays with her family. But at school, she avoids, uh, you know, bringing attention to herself and tries her best to fit in, to blend in. And I think that this is a very common Asian American experience, especially if you're living in a town where you're the only person who is from a marginalized group. Uh, So was that your experience? Did you feel like you had to have two versions of yourself? 
That was definitely my experience. I, um, you know, I grew up in a house that had Hindi music playing all day almost. And um, it, my dad would blast it in the car and, you know, we'd turn into our neighborhood and I would be like, please roll the windows up. You know, <laughs> like I didn't want anyone to see it or hear it. And, um, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, there weren't really any characters that looked like me in books or in TV or movies. We had Apu on The Simpsons, which was clearly not an Indian American character. You know, it was this racial, racist stereotype. Um, so we, me and the um, the couple other Desi kids in school, we would be relentlessly teased using an Apu voice. Um, we, my brother's name is Apurva and it's shortened to Apu. So that's not great either for him. Oh God. Um, yeah, we just, it, it was really tough. And there were even instances where, um, you know, teachers would sort of other you. Um, I remember in high school, we were doing something with sea monkeys and um, we were done and the teacher was going to throw them down the sink and down the drain. And I said, um, are you just going to throw them down there? They're going to die. And, you know, he sort of groaned and said, are you Hindu? And um, I was just mortified and embarrassed of who I was. And I said, yeah, I am Hindu. And um, he just rolled his eyes and scoffed and said, that's what I thought, and then poured them down the drain. And so, um, you know, it, it just felt like from the adults in school and from my peers, there just wasn't a lot of acceptance or a lot of um, sort of celebration of diversity. Um, so that's, you know, those were my experiences. Yeah, like I I can definitely relate to teachers not pronouncing your name correctly. Yes. Uh, like my my name Rira is not I think I've met only two other Riras in my life and in those instances w we both were like what? Like how like how do, like how do we exist? Um I thought I was the only one, but right. I've definitely had experiences where um because I'm Korean and a lot of Koreans, when they immigrate here, their names get split in half. So uh, my first name is Ri, and then like my middle name was Ra, even though that was incorrect. So every year during attendance, I had to correct the teacher. Uh, and there yeah. were many times when the teacher, like when they would be like, okay, Ri, you, I, I would say, actually, it's Rira. It, it got split in half. It's a long story. Uh, I've had a couple teachers say, oh, can I just call you Re because it's easier. And uh, luckily, I had a bit of a backbone as a kid. So I, I would say, no, you're going to pronounce my name the way I pronounce it. Like, that's not my name. But obviously, uh, that's not, you know, that's not easy to do for a lot of kids, um, especially kids with more difficult names to pronounce. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, my last name is one of those syllables in Chinese that's impossible for the um, average American tongue to pronounce. So for much of my life, I just let them use the, like I just let them pronounce it phonetically, which right. is wrong, but it's easier. Right. Um, and you know, only recently have I just decided that, oh, I'm going to pronounce it the way it's pronounced and everyone else can just do whatever they want. But, you know, getting to that point was was difficult because. Maybe it's the way we were raised, but we were raised to be accommodating, right? Yeah. Just to just to survive. Don't and... don't make a fuss. Don't draw attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I found it really interesting that um, so there's there's another Desi girl in your book, uh, yeah, Avantika. I because she had just immigrated uh, from 
India, Leica has this, um, Leica expects that uh, Unvantica won't be able to navigate all of the microaggressions and a lot of the racist comments that uh, she'll definitely face in school. But surprisingly, Avantika is pretty confident. She can speak up. She challenges bullies. And I thought that was like really interesting because uh, it goes against expectations. We expect uh, those who come from different countries to kind of be lost in the system and uh, not be able to adapt quickly. Uh, so is there a reason why you decided to make Avantika the outspoken one about her Indian identity, the one who is more comfortable with it rather than Lika? Yeah, I mean, you touched on it a little. I, I wanted to sort of challenge the stereotype and and make it a little surprising. Um, and And I also wanted to challenge a lot of readers who, um, you know, who do, who do think like Leica, I, I know I was guilty of it as a kid. We definitely called people fobs and we laughed at them because it was a way for us to be like, oh, we're, we're more quote unquote American than them, you know? Um, and, and that was wrong. And I, I know that now, but, um, I, I wanted to challenge Leica and make her realize that, um, you know, you don't have to look or sound a certain way to be considered American. And um, I wanted someone to show her that you can be proud of who you are. There was one line in the book that really stood out to me, and it was said by Leika's father. Uh, this is when Leika is saying, Avantika is a fob. She's she's not going to like be able to survive school. And Leika's father says, do you have any idea how hurtful it must be uh, to feel how hurtful it must be to feel people new to this country to be made fun of just for being Indian. Like you're lucky you didn't have to experience that. Yeah. And as I've heard that growing up so many times, I'm a grown adult and I still hear it from my parents. Uh, They say like, Oh, aren't you lucky because you speak with an American accent. You came to this country when you were very, very young. Like, look at your other cousins who immigrated when they were, like, in middle school or high school. Like, they're never going to belong. Like, they've they faced discrimination. And I'm like, yeah. what are you talking about? Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I faced discrimination my entire life. I, yeah. like, uh, I've lived in different neighborhoods. So I've had the experience of being, like, one of two Asian girls in my class to like, there are so many Asian people in my class, but in both circumstances, there has definitely been a lot of microaggressions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I purpose, you know, purposely put that line in because I, I remember my parents saying this to me too. And, and I, I don't think I really told them everything that happened to me every single day at school. I actually, I don't think I told them much of it at all. Um, so yeah, there is that sort of, um, shock on Lake cousin. Like I go through this every single day. You have no idea what you're talking about. So, so yes, I, I definitely wanted to address that. Well, also like middle school is such a difficult time, you know, like yeah. when I was reading your book, I, I definitely had that feeling of, I'm so glad I'm not in middle school anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that I don't have to go to school with like bullies that will make fun of my name or like my culture. But at the same time, when you graduate, you still face that. And um, 
like that's that's what I found like really interesting because the microaggressions that uh, Leica faces at school, it you know, it kind of seeps into her community, and she's seeing it in more of a macro aggression. Um, there's a senator running for office on an anti-immigrant campaign. Her campaign is literally "Don't like it, leave," which is, <laughs> which is such. Uh, I don't know. It it's something that immigrants hear so often, right? Yeah, it's like you either you know you either have to adapt, you have to assimilate, or just go back to your own country without any consideration to the fact that you know. Like no one come, no one chooses. Usually, no one chooses to come here uh, unless there's like a really good reason. No one, no one really wants to leave um, your home where everybody looks like you and speaks your language and you're comfortable. It's usually, usually not a choice. Um, and I really like the fact that Leica's parents, they have polarizing reactions to uh, like the anti-immigrant campaign and the hate crime that happens in their community. Um, was there a reason why you wanted to have uh, the parents have two totally different reactions to it? Yeah, I think this was one of the first times that I wrote a book where I was like, well, I can really identify with these adults in this book. <laughs> you know, I still identify with Leica, but I, I could see everyone's point points of view. But, um, you know, I based a lot of I, which is the mom's um, character on a lot of the fears and anxiety I was having. Um, you know, there had been several hate crimes in the year that I was writing this. And um, I just sort of felt myself going towards the side of just living in fear. Um, and then I gave the father that sort of opposing view where he, where he is pretty proud of who he is. And he also um, is sort of unapologetic about his existence and, and doesn't feel like I does that you have to sort of hide and be quiet and not challenge things and, um, you know, not report something when, if there's, you know, like the, the racist incident that happens in, in the book. So. Um, you know, I, I wanted to show those two points of view and make people kind of challenge themselves and and try to see which which way is the better way to be um, in terms of do I remain silent or do I speak up? So Leica, she like so her teacher gives this assignment to do an op ed and um, she's encouraged by Noah, her friend, to speak out about the hate crime and to. Uh, and he says, there, there's a lot of things you care about, but you choose to be silent. And I think that that isn't just a middle school thing. I think a lot of people, a lot of adults are afraid to say what, to speak out against something that is clearly wrong. Yeah. And uh, I just want to ask, like, what is your advice for not just young people, but uh, but people who struggle to find their voice? Like, how... Like, what are some tips that you would give for them to have the courage to speak out? Yeah, I mean, I um, I was like Leica. I did not have, I didn't find my voice until college. Um, so I never spoke up. I um, was pretty relentlessly racially bullied through my whole um, childhood in this town. And I, I just didn't have it in me to speak up. It was scary, you know, and I, I couldn't do it. But when I went to college, I realized that my voice is my writing. So um, I always tell people that, you know, it's okay if you're afraid to speak up, um, 
you know, and, and March and, um, you know, maybe talk at a school board meeting or something. If that's, if that's scary for you, there are um, other ways that you can express your voice. Some people express it through art or through poetry or through music or dance or just by making a sign or, you know, um, so I always tell them there are different ways to express themselves and find their voice. And it's, for me, it's still scary to actually speak out at things. Um, there, there was this whole incident in my town where the school board president, um, came out as a, um, COVID denier and, um, yeah, and had posted a bunch of, um, racist memes and, so I, you know, I spoke up at one of the meetings and my voice was shaking. I was, I was scared, but, um, so I, I completely understand that, but there are other ways to get your point across and, and still say something. I actually, um, you know, I ended up writing everything I wanted to say and I, and I emailed it into the board as well. So I was, <laughs> I was able to express myself better through writing, but, um, you know, there are different ways to do it. And, um, I think your voice is important and everyone needs to hear that. Um, you know, it's, it's really important right now. I actually, since I wrote the book, I, I had made a vow after the last election that I won't be silent anymore and I will speak out. So it is scary. Um, but I've been sort of forcing myself to do it. And I just keep reminding myself that if Leica could do it in middle school, I can do it now. How has the reception been from, um, have you gotten any, um, fan mail from people that were yeah, find your message? I have. Um, so the, I think the most interesting thing right now is um, because, you know, the book released in summer when, or in June when most schools had already um, were out. Um, I, I've been doing a couple of sessions with book clubs or with schools that have summer reading programs. And um, it's been really incredible to see how kids of all backgrounds um, really embrace the story and feel inspired to speak up. And, um, and another interesting thing was when the book first released, I had so many adult friends write me and say, this was the first time they felt seen and that like this book captured their whole childhood. Um, so, so that really felt special, um, you know, and, and to be able to have their story seen in this book. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I think having a story like this, geared towards younger readers it really you know perspectives are so important and especially perspectives that you're not used to yeah. experiencing personally so i think the fact that you're either letting people see themselves or letting people see from a point of view that they aren't familiar with so that's really amazing that what you were able to do with this book oh thank you i think one reason why we need diverse books really took off is because a lot of authors who are writing diverse stories now, they didn't have them growing up. Yeah. And, um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a vow, like you said, to, to speak up and to make sure that kids nowadays will have uh, their experience portrayed in media. And yeah. it's so important. Representation is so important. And so there's a lot of Indian terms in your book and there is no glossary. And I just, I know that this is something that a lot of reviewers have mentioned and have critiqued about. Personally, I think it's completely fine to not have a glossary. We spend our entire lives defining our culture to the majority. Right. But uh, like, I just want to ask, like, why did you choose to not have a glossary for your book? Yeah. That so that was definitely um, you know done on purpose. I I remember when. Um, 
Ahimsa came out, I saw a review um, from someone who said, you know, this is going to be really difficult to have in my classroom. There, We need some sort of strategies to be able to pronounce these names. Um, and I was, I was sort of floored by that because, um, you know, we, we can say Hermione and we can say lots of multisyllable names, um, if we just take the, the time to learn how to say them. Um, so I, I really wanted this book to be just unapologetically Leica's story. And like you said, we spend so much of our life, um, explaining ourselves and, and defining things for others sort of to to be like, is it okay that we're here? Like, you know, here, let me explain everything for you. So I wanted this to be very unapologetic and um, just very proudly um, Marathi American and have those words in there. Um, and, you know, there are, you know, context clues that can help people figure out what things are. But um, I didn't want a glossary because I, I didn't feel like she needed to explain herself. Yeah, just imagine all the, space diverse books could save if we just didn't have explanatory commas <laughs> <laughs> or just um ju- just the fact that we uh, like google exists <laughs> like i can i can understand for older books to have glossaries because you know there's no way for you to look things up and to see pictures but now it's so easy it takes a couple seconds and literally that is what I did for your book I was like there's a lot of food that sounds great I have no (laughs) idea I have no idea what they are but I'm gonna look it up and it looks really good and I was very (laughs) hungry throughout your book were were you hungry when you were writing all I the food descriptions? Okay. I think I was a little hangry also, but yeah, I um mm-hmm. definitely was hungry when I was writing the book and and missing some some favorites. You know, I have to say like I've never had I have never brought Korean food for like my lunchbox. So yeah. I've never really had that lunchbox moment. But um, Avantika, she brings samosas. She yeah. she brings like her like like five course Indian meal right. like, to, to her school. And I was just like, man, I'm so jealous. Like I like I screw bullies. I would have I would have just brought my food and yes. It, it sounds so good. I feel like kids nowadays are able to do that. They I think so. Don't they don't have like the whole lunchbox shame or not as much as as, as we did when we were younger. I think so. I so when Ahimsa came out, I did a school visit in a town that um that had a lot of Asian American um students there. And um when I walked into the library where my school visit was, I could smell Indian food. And there were a handful of um Indian American kids who had brought had their parents give them like a full course Indian meal and they said it was in honor of me. And I was just, you know, floored <laughs> and so touched by that. And and I was so amazed that their peers were all like, no, oh, okay. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, obviously that lunchbox moment probably exists for kids in, in other spaces, but it was really something to see um, in this neighboring town that they were able to do that and they weren't being made fun of for it. I've had, I've had like an opposite lunchbox moment, which is there were, there were some Korean classmates in my school and they did bring Korean food to, to lunch. Whereas I brought like, I don't know. Like, what did I eat back then? <laughs> I, 
it wasn't Lunchables, but it was definitely like sandwiches and uh, like salads. And I would I, I would hear like, hey, how come you're not bringing Korean food to lunch? And it's like, I don't know. I guess my mom doesn't want to make it. So there you go. <laughs> it's not because I have shame for my culture. <laughs> I would prefer to eat Korean food at, at lunch. I, it, but it's it just doesn't keep as well. Like microwaving things, it's it's gross. Actually, speaking of microwaving, I thought Leika's mom and her, uh, I guess, like nervous tics about microwaving things yeah. and like researching, uh, like whether sleeping bags have like toxins in them. I thought that was really funny. Was that something that uh, was that something that you do or anybody in your family? Uh, does. uh yes <laughs> <laughs> so i um after my first child was born i i went to the to the far side of the let's have everything be non-toxic and so um i thought that was a very um funny quirk to give to give the mother because um i know my husband and my um friends used to um enjoy making fun of it a lot so um yeah i i gave it i gave it to you because of that it sounds like it's very time consuming. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it sure is. I, I have relaxed a little bit, so I will <laughs> admit that. It, it comes from a place of caring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a place of avid Googling as well. Yes, yes, yes. Darn that internet. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, right? Especially with um, stories about multi generational immigrant families, is the realization that your parents didn't annoy you on purpose. They were really like concerned about your right. well-being and safety and, and being able to, you know, function in this place. Yeah. So. I thought it was really funny also how, um, because Leica's mom is afraid of like chemicals and like plastic. She's also afraid of radiation. So, yeah. <laughs> so it, because of that, Leica doesn't have like a laptop or TV in her room. She doesn't have a cell phone. And I was like, oh, my God, even though this is modern day, I can yeah. totally see this set up in like the 90s, <laughs> right. or like the early 2000s, because <laughs> I didn't get a cell phone until I, I think like eighth grade or, or high school. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm older. And so my, you know, cell phones became like a big, I mean, I had a gigantic cell phone when I first went to, <laughs> to college as like, like a Zach Morris, like say by the bell, gigantic cell phone um, as like a backup in case there was ever an emergency. But obviously I never took that with me because it was gigantic, but um, <laughs> I didn't get like a, you know, my first little flip phone cell phone until um, senior year of college. Yeah, I was. Uh, my college years were with the the candy bar Nokia phones. Yes, that's yeah. what I had. Yes. <laughs> it's the phone that everyone has. <laughs> I remember when the razor came out, and I was like, "Oh, look how thin this is!" Right. This in my pocket. <laughs> so there is a scene where uh, Leika she wants to go to a sleepover with her teammates. I mean, she's a little she's pressured to do it, and she has to lie to her mother and. Um, I, I'm just like curious, like sleepovers, it's not really a thing that a lot of uh, Asian immigrant parents are okay with. Yeah. For some reason, it, I, I think it comes from like, I don't know, it, like a sense of fear of like, oh, what if something happens and I'm I not think there? So. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to say it's probably just them not trusting the other parents. 
That's what I think. Like, I think there's like a lot of fear there. Like, what if they do something differently? Or what if they like let someone unsafe into the house or, or who knows? What if, what if they feed you bad things? Right. (laughs) I'm sure with like Leika's mom, it's like, what if they feed you soda? Right. (laughs) Not candy at a sleepover. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I I wanted to put that in because I remember I remember getting in trouble when I um I had just made a new friend like the day before she came to my house. And when her mom came to pick her up, she was like, oh, you guys are having so much fun. You should just come over for a sleepover. Um, And my mom said no. And I like begged and begged and begged and and sort of forced her hand. And I, I went to this person's house and my mom said she was up all night, like so scared because she didn't know anything about this family and she didn't know if I would be <laughs> safe. And and now as an adult, I'm like, yeah, that was probably not the greatest thing that I did, you know, because <laughs> we didn't know them at all. We didn't we they had just moved into town and we didn't know them for for my mother. Th- the reason why she was hesitant to to like have me go over to people's houses and sleep over. I think it's just like a leftover uh like when when she was growing up, my my grandfather would lock the door at 10 p.m. So uh, you have to like get home before then. So I think it was oh. just like a leftover from like it's like oh this is how I grew up. So right yeah like this is unfamiliar territory. So I'm right. not gonna let you do sleepovers. Yeah yeah I only had I think two Indian American friends whose houses who were family friends that I could have sleepovers with. Another thing, um, I. Like, because, um, so one of the characters in your book is Idy. Is it Aidy? Aidy, yeah. Aidy. So Leika, she gets into a very, she gets into the competitive swim team and all of her other swim teammates, they, you know, they go out to pizza places, they bond, but because Leika, like, uh, she really can't do sleepovers with them. She, she's celebrating Diwali and they don't really understand. And there's always this this us versus them mentality. And that is a mentality that the adults adults have, of course, um, in, in their small community. And one of the pressure one of the things that uh AD pressures Leika to do is to shave her legs. And I don't think this is strictly an Asian American thing, but um like I feel I feel like girls nowadays like have that pressure to shave their legs early and to conform to a lot of beauty standards um that's being perpetuated in in like magazines and television and i don't know like were you pressured at like a very young age to shave your legs or i don't know to do your hair differently yeah i i definitely like that lawnmower comment and stuff from the books that that was all said to me in in fifth grade because i wasn't allowed to shave then um I remember in sixth grade, I still wasn't allowed, but I went and grabbed my dad's razor and and did it um, without any, just just flat out on my skin. And so I was bleeding everywhere. (laughs) So um, that moment from the book is from my life. Um, But yeah, you know, I I wanted that to be a moment where Leica actually, you know, realizes that she, she has to do, she has to follow her, her heart and, and do what, um, what she knows deep down is right. Um, so she, she doesn't, you know, shave her, shave her legs in, in that moment. Um, it's interesting. You talked about the swim team and the us versus them. I, I wanted the, um, you know, the area of swimming to be the one place where Lake has actually 
um, feels like an equal to all of these people around her, but she still is so consumed with all this self-doubt from all these years of othering and bullying that she doesn't really realize that she's she is everyone's equal, both in and out of the pool. Like we, you know, there's not one person who's better than the other. So um, yes, there was a lot there with the swimming and the and the shaving and the those beauty standards that we do, um, you know, push on to girls at a very young age now. Um, one thing that I'm really glad that you brought up was as confident as Avantika is with her Indian culture, she's uncomfortable with her skin color. And she uses Fair and Lovely because she's pressured. And again, it's this pressure to fit into beauty standards. And I, I don't think a lot of Westerners understand that type of beauty standard. So it's kind of seen as barbaric. Like, yeah. yeah, it's just like, why are you bleaching your skin that, you know, doesn't that hurt? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's, it, and it's those like Eurocentric beauty standards that have led to all of this. But um, yes, I, it's I really, their fault. But yes, you know, they're not, they're not taking responsibility. For it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, I wanted to show that, like, like you said, she's so confident, but she, she also is going through um, her own doubts. And um, I really wanted to show that there is, you know, prejudice against Leica in this community, but there's also intercommunity issues where there, where people discriminate in the, in the Indian American community. And I know in other um, Asian American communities as well, based on how light or dark your skin is. So um, I really wanted to put that storyline in. I remember when I was younger. Um, I, I had fair and lovely put on me, and I remember it burning my face. Um, and and I remember seeing all these brands a few years later, American brands um, that had their own fairness products in India that they would never be allowed to sell in America. Um, and so I wanted to sort of call all of that out. And I know just just after the book came out. Um, a lot of those products sort of had their reckoning and and I think some have said they will change their name. I don't know if the purpose of the product is still going to be the same um, because I don't think the name change really helps, but um, we'll, we'll see what happens there. But I, I did want to show that within the community, there are issues too. Uh, so like, I, I think we are winding down right now. So I do want to ask, like, you have another book that's coming out in 2021, I think. Yeah, I, I have three books coming out in 2021. Oh, God. Um, All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in, I don't know the exact date, maybe around January, um, my next historical fiction book comes out. It's called Strongest Fire, Fiercest Flame from two books, the publishers of Ahimsa. And um, I got the idea for this book when I thought back to the only representation I saw of um, anyone they see in any book growing up was when our class read the secret, a part of the secret garden. And um, I remember feeling like this sense of, oh, I recognize myself in this book, but wait, no, I'm just a background character and it's not my story. <laughs> and oh, wait, we don't really even exist. We're just, you know, serving this person. So um, I wanted to challenge who we center in these so-called classics and, and make readers think about who is being left out and you know, let's let's have some new classics now. I think it's it's time to retire some of these old ones. Um, and then I have Bindu's Bindi's, which is a picture book coming out in spring from Sterling. And that's the story of a girl who matches the shape of her Bindi's to um, her nannies, her grandmother's Bindi's. Um, 
And then I have That Thing About Bollywood from Simon & Schuster Books for Young Readers, which comes out in summer of next year. And that is the story of Sonali, who is um, really bad at showing her emotions. And she's a girl who just adores old Hindi movies, old Bollywood movies. And one day her parents announce that they're separating and she gets this magical condition that forces her to express herself in the most obvious way possible through Bollywood song and dance numbers. So I'm really excited about all of these books for next year. Wow. That sounds like it could be like a movie. I hope so. <laughs> you you can write that movie. I could. <laughs> uh, speaking of movies, do you have any Bollywood recommendations uh, for our listeners out there? Ooh. Um, <laughs> well, I guess um, I guess a, a pretty classic Bollywood movie from 2001 is Lagan, which was um, it was actually ended up being nominated for an Oscar, but that's not why I I like it. Um, it has great music, and it's this retell. It's this totally fictionalized story of a um, a village that has to pay tax to the Britishers in I think the early 1900s. I can't remember when it takes place. And um, this British captain says that he will forgive their tax if they can beat him in a game of cricket, which was this new sport that they had never seen before. Um, and it's so it's about how all these um, people in the village come together and and what happens. Um, you know, there are some moments that are, um, I guess, a little strange, but um, on the whole, I do I do like the movie a lot. Well, Supriya, time has really flown. I can't believe we've been talking for almost an hour now. Um, don't don't say that because <laughs> we don't know how long this episode <laughs> episode is going to be. <laughs> um, but American as Paneer Pie, it's already out, and I hope uh, people pick it up because I think it's a really important story. And also, there's a recipe for paneer pie at the end of there the book. Is. So if you want to try it. I mean, we're in COVID. We're in self-isolation. So now is the time. Now is the time. (laughs) Yes. For sure. Thank you both so much for having me on. It was so fun talking to you. Yeah. If people want to find out more about your thoughts or find out more about your books, where can they go online? Um, They can go to my website, which is um, www.myfirstandlastname.com. So S-U-P-R-I-Y-A-K-E-L-K-A-R.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you both so much. And that was our interview with Supriya Kalkar, um, author of American S. Near Pie, as well as a bajillion other books coming out next year, apparently, uh, which is really, really exciting. Um, I'm glad things are going well for her. Uh, Rira, what did you think about our interview? I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> there, there were a lot of laughs and also... Uh, some serious conversation about microaggressions and about bullying and about peer pressure. So I, I thought it was a really good conversation. And I'm really excited to hear what younger people have to say about this book. So we have more author interviews coming up, so stay tuned for that. Yeah, and don't forget our August 2020 book club pick is The Empress of Salt and Fortune by Nii Vo. Um, again, it's a shorter book. It's a novella. So you should be able to you know, read it the day before our episode comes out and still be, still be good. Um, I'm talking to myself, of course, because that's probably what I'm going to do. Um, but yeah, don't forget to, uh, if you've already finished the book, to let us know what you think about it on our Goodreads forums. It's always great to hear what our listeners think so we can incorporate that into our discussion. 
And with the, wait, before we go, we haven't done this in a while, and I wanted to do it because it seems like we've gotten a lot of new listeners lately. But if you're enjoying our podcast, um, please give us a rating review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere where you can put a review. It does help us out with people discovering our podcast. You know, you always want to see a lot of reviews or a lot of ratings as a as a sign of quality. But it also makes us feel really good to know that people are listening. So. Um, if you have the time and you haven't done so already, um, please um, help us out. We would really, really appreciate it. Um, but on that note, um, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you so much for listening. All right. See you next time. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Mira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Kim! Steve? What's going on? Tell me, what do you know about K-dramas? Oh, um, they have something to do with the drama that comes from K-cup coffee pots? Because you know they're bad for the environment? Uh, No. Oh, you mean Korean dramas? Yeah, I know that they are very grounded in reality. No, that's actually the opposite of what happens. It it sounds like you don't know anything about K-dramas. Yeah, I was just guessing. That's actually perfect. Remember Will, Phil, and Joanna did that Korean drama podcast? Yeah, they saw Boys Over Flowers. Yes, and people apparently listen to it and want another season. But Will and Phil are still recovering from that season. Oh my god, are they okay? I did hear they tried to give themselves amnesia. Oh, is that a K-drama thing? Yeah, pretty much. So, are you guys down to help out with the new season of the Korean drama podcast? So we're going to be watching a K-drama this time? Which one? Secret Garden, from 2010. It was a big hit. And if you're down, check out the Korean Drama Podcast at koreandramapod.com. Kaja! Am I going to see sauna towel buns?